the economics of paid media get really hard. You have to make more of it and you have to figure out how to make more of it for less money. Companies are still struggling with that. And that's what makes being a storytelling company in 2019 a really tough proposition. Story doing companies instead rely on creating a palpably different and delightful customer experience. And they depend rather than on paying money to tell the world their story, story doing companies depend on customers to tell their story. They design customer experiences that light up the medium of people. They create experiences that make people want to just tell all their friends about them. Welcome everyone, my name is Julie Masters and here we are in another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now here's today's question. What quest are you on? And then the follow-up question. What's the natural enemy of that quest? Not necessarily a person, but maybe an idea, a viewpoint, or a traditional way of doing things. Now, for regular listeners of the podcast, you will know that a frequent topic of conversation is the power of storytelling. All of the loops that we go on seem to come back to this point, whether we're talking about future trends, whether we're talking about politics, whether it's what we watch on Netflix, what we binge on Netflix, the ads we skip past on YouTube or the way we communicate our ideas in person or from the platform. The impact of a well-crafted story is one of the most primal and powerful forms of influence on the planet, not to mention the fastest way to cut through and the most reliable tool in converting that cut through into action. Now, storytelling in business, it's not a new concept. We've been wondering how businesses should tell their brand story since marketing began, literally since the origins of the word where it began with stall holders trying to get our attention in the marketplace, trying to get their products to stand out in a literal marketplace. So what's changed? And what's the next iteration of storytelling? Especially especially now, especially in a digital age where we can no longer outshout, outspend, or outinterrupt in order to guarantee our target audience's attention. Today's guest has built a career around these questions and the belief, the firm belief that brands that will dominate in the future and are in fact dominating today are those that have taken storytelling to the next level, the level beyond simply telling and into story doing. Ty Montague and his co-founders at CoCollective help companies innovate their customer experience using the methodology of story doing, which they have created. Using his own words, Ty considers himself to be a traditional advertising refugee, quotation marks, having decided to pivot his entire career when he noticed and couldn't explain why. Starbucks could be on every single corner, yet not spend a single dollar on traditional advertising. That one moment called into question every tool, every belief, every philosophy, every methodology he had used during his career. He took that question and he went on to build a philosophy and a company and a global reputation on the answer. Not to mention writing a standout book that if it isn't already, just my 
five cents worth should be on the curriculum for every world-class marketing MBA on the planet. True story, how to combine story and action to transform your business. Emphasis on the word action. In today's conversation, we dive into the difference between storytelling and story doing and how the best companies aren't just telling their stories, but building an entire customer journey around it. The bottom line practically and from an execution standpoint behind what a story doing company does that works. The importance of carefully defining your quest and a clear enemy and why it's at the core of our very humanity to gravitate towards those that stand for and against something important to us. How to strategize for the iconic. This one was huge for me. It's, it's, one, it's a word I hear so much and it's one thing to aim to become an iconic brand, to claim to be an iconic brand, but very few people understand the grassroots strategy behind bringing that word to life in the minds of your consumer. Why a pile of free t-shirts can tell you more about your brand story than a thousand surveys or data points. How to humanize your brand by developing stories that authentically resonate. Plus, how Ty sees the story doing philosophy playing out in the next horizon when it comes to new and emerging technology. Not to mention a couple of golden soapbox moments on how committing to this new paradigm, literally, if you play it out to its natural conclusion, has the power to solve some of the world's largest issues. There were a lot of aha moments for me in today's conversation. It was just one of those conversations that flowed into unexpected and fascinating places. But one of the biggest standouts was just how logical Ty's philosophies are. Now, this is a man who has spent decades on the front line of building ideas and brands and stories that actually stick. And as I find we uncover more often than not on this podcast, what he discovered in the arena, actually in there, in the midst of the battle, getting himself dirty, turns out to be the opposite of traditional wisdom. So get ready to stop chasing all those impact unicorns, to identify the gaps in your story and to start fiercely advocating for your quest. You're going to want your notepad for this one. Please enjoy my conversation with the storyteller from the front line, Ty Montague. Welcome to the podcast, Ty Montague. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. This is our this is our second go at having you on the podcast, and I'm so determined that we're back here again. Oh, it's going to be awesome. I predict it already. I can feel it. Well, let's let's kick off the with the usual question that I that I kick the podcast off with, which is whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert, and rationale behind that question. And it actually came up again just yesterday. I was at an event and this prevalent belief that the only way that you can stand out, express ideas, have them amplified at scale is if you consider yourself to be an extrovert. And I've just found it not to be true. And so social experiment, I'm asking everybody that comes on the show. Yeah, I just I don't I don't think that's true either. I'm definitely an introvert Um, and it's taken quite a while for me to develop sort of the the strategies for coping with that because I do agree that the two are in the two concepts you know being 
being someone who's a, I, I guess, uh, an influencer within my very narrow niche and, um, or, or maybe an expert in something, um, and, and being an introvert are, there are count countervening forces there and you have to sort of overcome them, I think. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that just simply because yes, that's true that there are so linked in, in the minds and the stories that we have collectively. And yet I find that the majority of experts who people who have truly committed to mastery in an area tend to have, if not be an extrovert, tend to have some introverted qualities because the qualities of an introvert are the ability to be able to listen and concentrate and get curious and go quiet and absorb information. And those are all the things that are necessary to master anything, become an expert. Yeah, totally agree. I completely agree with that. And I remember you saying the last time we spoke that you've developed strategies. Was it, it was some kind of crazy running that you do in order to make sure you get that downtime as an introvert? Yeah, I, I pursue as a hobby just um, – it's, uh, it's a variety of, of sports that you, where you spend a, a fair amount of time alone. Um, and so that's how I recharge is by myself out doing these, you know, in some cases unusual, in some cases fairly pedestrian things. I participate in triathlons and – you know, there's just a lot of practice time where you can't really be with anybody in a swimming pool or out on a long bike ride or out on a run. And, um, and I honestly prefer that. So I spend time alone doing that. And I also, um, I really love backcountry snowboarding. So you find yourself out in the woods hiking, uh, looking for a really good line and, um, you're by yourself or with a partner if it's, you know, depending on the conditions, it's in some cases unsafe to be out there completely by yourself. But you're very isolated in the wilderness, and I've, I find that um, to be incredibly healing. Yeah, there's something about movement, especially when you're looking for ideas. There's just something, again, inextricably linked between movement of the body and allowing enough space for a new idea to arrive. Talking about new ideas... Very, very interesting segue. It was a you, great segue. I know. I jumped on that. <laughs> Did you notice that? Um, you, you had said, I, I'm a refugee from the traditional advertising business. And there's so much to that, to that word and so much emotion to that word. What was, the, what was the catalyst to you feeling that that had become the situation? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I spent a, a fairly long time in the traditional ad business working at advertising agencies about 20 years maybe a little longer and but about mm, 10 years ago it really became clear to me that things were completely different um and oh you know there was one particular moment that i remember noticing that there were these very large companies companies were growing very large and successful without using any traditional advertising or in fact paid media at all. The first one I remember noticing was Starbucks. 
And, uh, you know, there's that moment where you're walking down the street, at least in the States, and I looked up and and it seemed like overnight that suddenly there was a Starbucks on every street corner. But there was no Starbucks advertising anywhere on television or um, in newspapers or magazines. And uh, that made me scratch my head uh, because there are McDonald's everywhere here also, but McDonald's advertising is also everywhere. They pound the airwaves with promotion. And I remember thinking to myself, all other things being equal, the Starbucks way of building a business has got to be more efficient. And so I started looking around trying to find more companies that operate in the Starbucks way rather than in the McDonald's way. And I began to make lists of them and I categorize them now. I didn't have a name for them then, but, you know, traditional companies, I call storytelling companies, these new companies uh, that definitely have a story, but are really are, are conveying their story more through innovation in the customer experience. I call these companies story doing companies. They have a narrative, but they make that narrative known to people and clear to people and real to people um, through the products that they make, in some cases, the services they provide, in some cases, their business model. And so I made the decision, uh, you know, at uh, about 10 years ago to leave traditional advertising and devote myself 100% to helping companies um, become better story doers. When I, when I first came across your work, I just, I loved that distinction. It was a really new mm. distinction to me because I feel like, I feel like we're still very much in the wilderness here with, with storytelling, with organizations. If you look at the questions that are coming out of organizations at the moment, the scratching of the heads, we've gone from you know, high production being the cut through to reality being the cut through. We've gone from highly branded to unbranded. Um, we've gone from, you know, no one has any attention anymore. The attention spans have diminished to less than a goldfish to what um, I've heard now being called the Netflix effect, which is, well, actually, if you can put something forward that's compelling enough, we will binge. We will give you unlimited amounts of our attention. Right. So I do feel like organizations are very much out there just going, we, we all the old rules no longer apply. We have no right. idea what works here. So talk to me, let's go a little bit further into this distinction that you've created, the, the difference between sure. storytelling and story doing. Let's start with, you know, start at the beginning. What's the shift that caused it? What do you feel that pivot point was? I feel um, a lot, it was caused by a couple of things. You know, the, 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 the development and rapid proliferation of the internet, obviously, everybody being connected to everybody else in the world um, changes a few things. First of all, it, it creates many more channels through which paid media messages need to move. Um, and so the economics of paid media get really hard. You have to make more of it and you have to figure out how to make more of it for less money. And uh, companies are still struggling with that. Um, and that's what makes being a storytelling company in, you know, 2019, a really tough proposition. Um, story doing companies instead rely on creating a palpably, uh, different, uh, and delightful customer experience. And they depend rather than on, um, telling, having paying, money to tell the world their story. Story doing companies depend on 
customers to tell their story. They're, they're, they design customer experiences that light up the medium of people. They create experiences that make people want to just tell all their friends about them. You know, So you look at companies, as I said, I mentioned Starbucks, but today the world is full of companies that do this. Tesla is a great example of a company that is, has, you know, you know, they just reported their earnings uh, today or yesterday, and they they really crushed the quarter. You know, they are becoming a force, and they do no uh, paid media. They they do no advertising. And so, um, what? Sorry to interrupt you, but from yeah, execution, no. from an execution standpoint, let's look at Tesla. What is it that they do? You know, you were talking about. We're essentially talking about creating story-worthy moments for customers. So rather than you telling their story, as you've said, creating a moment that is so story-worthy that they will tell it for you. Yeah. What, what, do te- what does Tesla do? I mean, I have, I love Tesla, and yet I am, <laughs> I have not purchased any of their products, so I don't know what on the ground they do that's different. Right. Well, um, so the characteristics of it, you know the, the characteristics of story-doing companies <clears throat> are. It was interesting as I got to know them and began to make these and collect lists of them. I noticed that they all share certain characteristics. The first characteristic of a story doing company is that they're on a quest. They are pursuing a purpose that transcends merely creating shareholder value. They are uh, on a generous mission, and the purpose of their quest is to inspire other people to not only become customers, but to honestly participate in the achieving of the quest. And that applies to customers, employees, as well as partner companies. So for te- in Tesla's case, you know, they're not uh, thinking of themselves as a car company. They are not out to beat Ford or GM or Mercedes. Tesla's quest is to upend what Elon Musk calls the mine and burn economy, the hydrocarbon economy, and usher in a new economy of clean, sustainable electric power. So they are an electric power infrastructure as well as a transportation company. The cars are sort of the first step to achieving that quest. And then you think about the infrastructure of the charging stations, but then they introduced Powerwall, which is a battery pack that goes inside your home that makes your home more energy efficient. They recently introduced solar roof tiles that are aesthetically appealing to encourage people to tile their roofs with photovoltaic um, cells. So Tesla is um, trying to make their quest real uh, through the products and services that they provide. And they are so innovative that they don't need to spend any money on traditional paid media. People just want to tell Tesla's story um, to all of their friends. I just want to dive into that a little bit further because sure, what's in there is is a massive opportunity. Because if you look, as you've said, if you look at going after a product category as opposed to um, pursuing a quest – You look at Virgin, you look at Richard Branson, he very much had a quest. And what that did was opened him up to every product category. There was no product category that Virgin couldn't enter because their quest was so clearly defined. So the same for Tesla is what you're saying. That, you know, they, by going after a quest, they opened up every product category that helped them get closer towards that end game. Exactly. And it makes – this is another interesting aspect of story doing businesses. Virgin is definitely one of them. 
they are hard to describe in conventional terms. We like to think of a company as a a car company or a cupcake company or a software company and story doing companies tend to be they tend to defy those classifications because they are pursuing a quest rather than trying to um you know attack a particular product category they're much more uh diversified than typical you know uh siloed category players and that kind of agility in this marketplace is a huge is a huge competitive advantage because you're Absolutely. you're not stuck in silos, um, and you actually studied um, as part of my research. I found a website. Please go and check it out. Anyone that's listening, I think it's storydoing.com, I think we'll put it in that's the show correct. notes. And you put together a study of the performance differences between different storytelling companies and different story doing companies, and some of the standout results for me in that were that story storytelling companies had a 6.1% revenue growth, whereas story-doing companies 9.6% revenue growth. Correct. The, the biggest one that blew my mind was that operating incomes over that period of time that you studied it, storytelling companies went down 12.2%. Story-doing companies went up 12.8%. Now, that is huge. It is huge. And you know those results we we've we've done that study now three times in a row and you know some people say well you have a bunch of big technology companies in there even if you comb the technology companies out the results hold up we've looked at 50 different companies in seven different commercial categories three you know three and run the study three different times and and every single time the results have come back the same way the other aspect is that there are all these soft, uh, soft benefits, perceptual benefits. So, um, you know, story doing companies on an almost two to one basis are thought of as being more innovative. They're thought of as being more future thinking by consumers. Um, they get credit for making a positive impact in the world. Uh, they command, uh, both better customer and employee loyalty. They hang on to customers and employees longer. And they achieve those results uh, all spending a third of what traditional storytelling companies spend on on paid media. So it's it's clearly just a more efficient way to run a business. So let's go further let's let's go further into the how into the how of this. So we've we've talked about defining a quest. Yes. Um, let's go. Then one of the one of the other elements of it is you need to define a clear enemy, and I, I zeroed in on that because there's an article that I have saved to my desktop, and it's somebody breaking down one of the most pivotal speeches that Elon Musk gave when he was announcing Tesla or some of Tesla's grand goals, and it defined one of the most important parts of that speech was he defined a clear enemy. So I saw it once there and I kept it because I thought it was interesting. And, and you've said it again that you, you can't have a quest without a clearly defined enemy. However, that enemy doesn't necessarily have to be the competition. Right. Exactly. In fact, it often is not the competition. It's, it can be an idea. It can be a technology. It can be an industry. Um, but the best story doers know not only what they're for, you know, the kind of uh, what they want to stand for in the world, 
uh, but they also know what they're against. They have identified the dragon that they are getting out of bed every day to slay, and um, they're very, very clear about it, and they they communicate it uh, internally um, as as effectively as possible because it's just energizing. It pulls people together. If you know what you're not only you know kind of the the higher purpose, but but what you're what you're fighting against. Just from a psychological point of view, I don't know if you have any opinions on why we need that so badly. And we and we see it over and over again. We see it in politics. We see it, you know, in the rise and fall of Theranos. We, why do we need an enemy? Why why does there have to be that in order for us to mobilize behind an idea, a brand, or a product? This doesn't have to be factual, by the way. Just your opinion. That's a super. I mean, that's a great question. It's a very deep one. Um, I I I would say what I believe about that is that it, this is very deep in us, um, based on the way that we have evolved. You know, we are um, relatively, if you put us up against, you know, the average saber-toothed tiger, we are small and weak. Um, physically as individuals, you know, we're a relatively trivial creature. Um, our superpower is working and operating in groups and teams. And so I believe that over, you know, millennia, we have evolved, uh, the, the, the need for not even just the ability to, but the need for story and for purpose in our work as a as a co- as a glue as a as a cohesion mechanism for groups because the more the group is aligned the more the group sticks together and the more the group hangs together under adverse conditions you know when this when the saber-toothed tiger shows up you don't want everybody scattering um, and so really being super clear about you know, what is the purpose that we're pursuing? What does this group stand for? And what are we fighting? What injustice are we fighting against is, um, you know, I believe an evolutionary response to our environment. It also ties in beautifully. And again, there's so many levels to this. We could talk about this particular part all day. I won't spend much more time on it. There's something in us, you look at the power of the hero's journey as a story architecture. You know, even just the other day, I was with my daughter in the playground and a a very innocent man came into the playground with his son and she looked at him and she said, Mama, is, is he is he a bad guy? Is he the bad guy? And I thought that's so interesting. I don't ever use that language. <laughs> but she's watched cartoons, obviously, and she's read stories and, you know, yeah. our need for something within ourselves to find the strength of the hero, the hero's journey, yeah. we need we need to identify a bad guy. We need to clearly be able to articulate it, point it out. It's such an innate need that she already wants to be able to point out the bad guy so that she can know, you know, who she's who she's standing against in a way. Absolutely. Think about the phenomenon of of like uh horror movies. Why why does that exist? Why do we why do we need to gather and create um, spectacle that is designed to terrify us. You know what I mean? Like that is a very strange thing if you just look at it as a, as a piece of behavior. But I think it's, I think it, just like your daughter, it's, it's sort of, it touches on that, that mechanism deep within us that says like, it's a scary world out there. There are 
good people. There are good, you know, beings. The world can be a good place and it can be a bad place and there can be bad people. And in a way, we need that uh, in order to really define our own group and define who is in that group and who is not in that group. So interesting. I'm going to I'm going to keep moving there because I want to I want to delve deeper into into story doing. Another another element you had mentioned. So we have defining a quest, we have clearly identifying the enemy, not necessarily a person or even an an entity. Another element you mentioned is you have also defined a few iconic transformative actions to focus on. Yes. Now I yes. love that word. I love the word iconic from a brand perspective. You know it when you see it, right? But mm. but when I sat with it, I was thinking, well, that's great. But having that as an end goal, how do you how do you strategize for that? How do you strategize for iconic? It sounds good, but where do you begin? Are there what are there any elements that have to be present for that? Well, let's. I'll use um, an example, and we can we can kind of peel apart whether. Uh, this company's, you know, because there are some issues, I think, with this company. But Amazon, I think, has in its recent history exemplified story doing behavior. Um, they are, you know, intensely innovative and they've created a culture at scale that seems to, you know, most companies seem to get less innovative as they grow. Amazon seems to get more innovative as it grows. Um, and I think that that is partially due to the culture that they've created internally. When they think about making a, a creating a new product or a new service or making a change to any aspect of Amazon.com, you know, it, this has been oft reported, instead of doing a PowerPoint or making a persuasive presentation, the in the Amazon culture, you do two things. You write a six-page paper about your idea, laying out your argument for why Amazon should do this thing. And then you also write a mock press release for your idea. In other words, you begin to look and, and as it then everybody reads the paper and then as a group you discuss and the function of the press release in that is to have a conversation around, okay, this might be a good, you know, money-making business at some point in the future, but how is the world going to react to it? How is this uh, new product or service going to um, either capture the world's attention or not? Um, and I think they do that because they, you know, obviously they want to grow the business, but they're also very serious about using innovation to grow their brand. And they understand that there are some ideas that are just more newsworthy and more talkworthy and more transmissible via the medium of people than others. And so they look for ideas that are both business builders and brand builders. And I think that that is another aspect that really separates story doers from storytellers. They believe story doing companies believe that innovation is a medium for brand building in the way that storytellers uh, do not. And so that's one of the, if that's one of the questions that we, that we ask ourselves when we're looking at, is, the, you know, is this an iconic transformative action to take? You know, one of those questions being, how is the world going to perceive this? Is this, a, is this decision going to elicit more storytelling 
from our customers. So that's the number one question. Are there any other questions? If I'm sat there in a strategy meeting going, look, we need to define some iconic transformative actions to focus on here. What other questions should I be asking myself? I'll be asking my team. Well, I think, you know, first of all, does this make the quest real is, I think, the most important question because that is the other um, the other really important function of iconic uh, actions or innovations is that it be, needs to be a, a manifestation of the quest. So you need to use the quest as a tool to measure whether or not this idea passes muster. It, does, it, does it embody the quest in some way or not? Do you mean a real physical experience as in when I come into store or when I, when I have a physical experience of the brand? Could could be all of the above. It could be it could be you know in in Tesla's case, um, you know you find this kind of really granular thinking about the experience that people are going to have, both the, you know the physical experience, but also the emotional experience that they're going to have around Tesla's products. So, you know, um, the software inside the vehicles is full of Easter eggs. Um, so there are. Right now, a traditional automobile that comes out of Detroit um, collects data, right? But that data is used only to provide you with negative feedback. Your car only gives you bad news. And it does it in a very oblique and bizarre way. So check a check engine light comes on. What does that mean? That means something is wrong, but I have no idea what it is. So I have to take it to the dealer to get you know, have them plug a machine into it and tell me what it is. And ultimately that experience is kind of negative and I know that there's going to be a big uh, check that I have to write at the end, end of it. Meanwhile, Tesla uses their software to deliver both important safety news, like if there's some kind of problem with the car, but also delight. Um, and so, you know, they're thinking about um, – about using using the experience that people have with the vehicles as a way to make the vehicles more uh, transmissible, more talkworthy, more the kind of thing that you want to invite somebody into the car to say, like, look, look at this thing I found buried in the software in this car. Isn't this awesome? And that person leaves and tells four of their friends about it. And that creates, you know, a sense of momentum and a sense of delight and a sense of of you know, kind of cultural currency for the Tesla brand that Detroit has completely um, forgotten or so isn't availing themselves of. So it's almost mapping out the entire the entire customer journey and then deliberately and consciously injecting those story-worthy moments, those delight moments, those um, unexpected moments throughout that journey. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what we what we do is we we build a current customer experience map for our clients to say this is this is how you how they see you uh, and how they experience you today. And then as part of our our process, we define areas of possibility either around pain points that exist or net new experiences that could come into play that would um, elevate people's experience with the company in a, you know, in a way that would be exciting and, and, um, you know, hopefully potentially iconic. You never can, can, can say hand on heart, 
this is absolutely going to be uh, iconic, but some things become iconic and some don't, but they all need to flow from, you know, your, your quest and the thing that you're trying to get done in the world. There's a beautiful example of that that I came across recently. It's called, it's not built yet, but it's called the Purpose Hotel. It's a guy, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a guy called Jeremy Cowan. It's, it's his concept. No. Check it out. It's a, it's amazing. So basically it's a hotel that he's, that he built off the, he's building off the back of a Kickstarter campaign. It's really interesting. And every part of the hotel is a story. It's a, basically a hotel built on stories. And every room sponsors a child. And as you walk into the room, before you even walk into the room, at the door of the room, there is a picture of the child next to the door with their story. And as you go in, the blanket has been sewn by somebody. Their story is in there. Every single element of the room is a story. And then even when you get your receipt, your receipt is broken down by, you know, you upgraded to high-speed wireless. A portion of that is going to help this particular story or this particular campaign or this particular cause even the receipt is a story and the traction that this has got is incredible for anybody who's looking at you know how to incorporate story doing around purpose around a quest um it's an amazing example and if you google it it's there's plenty of information fantastic so let's go back again you You've said another element. Let's keep going back to these elements of story doing. Yeah. Another element of story doing is that people outside the company are engaging with and participating in the story. And, and you had this fantastic example of the T-shirt test, Nike versus Reebok. And I think we all yes. know who wins out of Nike versus Reebok, but let's break it down. <laughs> Why does X win out of that? And how did you find out? How did you tell? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, simplicity uh, is something that we strive for. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can field all of the consumer research that you want. But um, at the end of the day, if you want to know how your brand is doing versus a competitor, uh, take your name, your company name and your logo and print them on the front of a white cotton t-shirt and then take your competitor and print their name and their logo on the front of another white cotton t-shirt or several of them, make two stacks, uh, put a table, put them on a table and on the table, put a a sign that says free t-shirts and put them out, put that table out on the street and see which t-shirts disappear fastest. You know, ultimately it's a great, just simple on the ground test for how salient are you? How, willing are people to actually wear you in public to kind of rock your brand in a public way, which is, you know, clearly at some level an endorsement. Um, and that will tell you very quickly how you're doing versus any of your competitors. Uh, and it obviously in the case of, of Nike versus Reebok, and this was quite a while ago, Nike, Nike, uh, did much, much better. And when I first read that test, even before I got to the end of the experiment, I was like, well, of course, Nike. And it was, it was just, you know, it literally came out of, my, of the depths of my, of my soul before any logic kicked in. Well, of course, of course it would be Nike. And then you break that down. And you're like, why? Why, of course? Why, of course, would it be Nike? And when you, get, when you go there, it is because Nike's story is clearer. 
Nike's quest is clearer. I wear a Nike t-shirt. I know what that means. I know what it says about my identity. I wear a Reebok t-shirt, not so much. There's no tribe in my head associated with Reebok. Right. What do they say? What, what, what do I stand for if I wear a Reebok shirt? It's totally unclear. It's still unclear years later. Um, you know, and uh, having, you know, standing for something has become, I, I think, only increasingly important. You know, there are now, I, I believe it's important for brands to take political stands, which used to be essentially the third rail. You would never take a political stand if you were a brand. But I think that, you know, we live in a time where choices have to be made. And if you want to really stand for something as a business, you need to tell the world what you what you what you're going to stand for and what you stand against. And I'm not saying every brand has to take a political stand, but some brands uh, that that avenue is open to them. Um, You know, you saw Nike a great example, take on the Colin Kaepernick issue. I don't know how much news play that got in Australia. Not much. I don't know much about that, I have to say. Yeah, okay. So he's a he's a quarterback in the NFL in the US and he started taking a knee during the when they the moment where they play the Star Spangled Banner and he did that to protest violence against African Americans in the United States. And that caught on and all kinds of players started taking knees to protest violence against African-American people in the United States. And Kaepernick ultimately um, lost his job as an NFL quarterback over the controversy and ultimately has still three years later not gotten a job. Nike came out and publicly supported his actions and built a whole – campaign around I, I believe the line was dream crazy um and kaepernick was right at the center of it now most brands they knew that this was a very polarizing thing in the united states there were people who believed that colin kaepernick was not a patriot that he was an unpatriotic person and a bad american for taking a knee during the star spangled banner and there were people who believed that he was standing up for what he believed in in a cause that really really mattered so it was very polarizing and to have a company step into that and say actually you know what what colin is standing for is something we should all stand behind and we're going to get behind this and we're going to we're going to we're going to stand up and and raise our hand and say we're taking a knee as a company was a very brave thing for them to do. Um, and it paid off just massively. It paid off massively among the people. And, and this is why it was, it was smart um, among the people that, you know, young people and people who Nike most wants to associate with and older people and you know, people who were less inclined to buy Nike already uh, really hated it. And and Nike probably lost some customers as a result, but they created a massive amount of both story value and, and literally share price value for um, taking that stand. And it also ties into something that I think we're seeing a lot of at the moment in terms of a movement with brands, the humanization 
of a brand. You know, we we didn't used to expect a brand to have an opinion. You know, a brand is a, it's a perfectly polished entity. It's a logo. We don't expect it to have an opinion. We just expect it to be beautiful and shiny. Now we're getting, you know, we have this move towards reality TV. We have this move towards more humanized language. We have the, you know, the democratization of media. And, and now we expect brands to behave more like humans. And a human being has an opinion. You know, a human being belongs to one tribe or another, as we've said. You know, a human being stands for something and against something. And so this lift in the expectation that we have of brands is firstly, you know, I think one of the very first times it's happened, but also is an immense opportunity if you can be first to market with that. Absolutely. And human beings have flaws, too. Um, and you know, the best ones are transparent about their flaws. They're conscious of them and they have the ability to laugh at themselves. Having a brand have a sense of humor about itself would also be heretical, but it is increasingly the coin of the realm because it's authentic. You know, we respect people who have a sense of humor about themselves, no matter how high and mighty they've become. And we, and we, we now have the same expectation of brands and, and companies. And I, I think, you know, that's just because everything is more transparent. Um, you know, you have things like Glassdoor that literally allow you to see inside a company and how what it's like to work in there and how people really feel about it. And uh, and so the, you know, the era of creating a, a shiny image in people's minds of, of who you are and who you stand for as a brand or a business is essentially over. Um, and so walking your talk, making sure you're really clear about what you stand for, and then actually standing for that, good, bad, or indifferent, is, is incredibly important. And also, you know, it, it, it flies in the face of the, you know, the, the kind of the behaviors and habits of of um, older companies that have been around longer. You know, for anyone who wants to dive deeper into that shift away from perfection, um, as well as obviously Ty's work, there's Google set up a team inside um, their walls called Unskippable Labs. And basically they analyze the 5 billion hours of videos that gets watched on YouTube every day to try and figure out what what gets cut through from a storytelling perspective. And they've published the results of these experiments on YouTube, funnily enough. They're, they're three minutes in length. And the one that they did with L'Oreal, specifically looking at that question, you know, what we want from a brand in terms of perfection and polish, is hugely interesting, actually. I'm I've done an interview with him previously and I've got another one coming up with him again to talk more about the results of their experiments, but they're doing some, some great work in that area. That's super cool. Um, now you, another thing that you've, that you've said previously that I wanted to jump into or jump on is you had said that the simple act of establishing a budget for innovation that cuts across silos in your company will put you ahead of most of the small and mid-sized companies in the world. Now, that's that's not common thinking. A budget for innovation, that's common thinking. A budget for innovation that cuts across silos, that's that's just fascinating. Walk me through that. Well, you know, most inside most companies, um, you know, innovation or R&D, as it's sometimes called, is a pretty incremental um, 
uh, exercise. It's a group of people with a very small, it's a, generally a very small group of people with a small budget who are tasked with making incremental improvements to the existing product line. Um, in story doing businesses, um, if you think of innovation as part of the lifeblood of the business, in other words, as a driver of the growth, the financial growth, but also the driver of the of the corporate reputation and ultimately of the brand, um, you begin to think of innovation uh, differently. You establish, um, you know, teams of people from multiple parts of the organization who are working on, in some cases, um, disrupting the core business of the business. Um, we've actually, um, this is, this is not actually ready for prime time yet, but it will very shortly be up on our website. We've, we've developed a product to help leadership teams do this called do or die. And it's essentially survival skills training for leadership teams where we ask them to imagine their own demise and then, uh, and, and in some cases, to design the company that is going to put themselves out of business as a way of looking at themselves through the eyes of potential competitors or through the eyes of venture capitalists who are going to be funding teams of people who are trying to um, trying to disrupt them, to pull them out of their daily and more incremental mindset and really think more expansively about businesses that would ultimately threaten their current business, um, but also open their minds to possibilities of new businesses that they might get into. I um, I had a conversation with a venture capitalist probably about a year ago, and that was mm. the the number one piece of advice that he gave when I asked him. You know, what would you, what would you advise companies to do to to spark their innovation, to work on their growth, obviously to work on their valuations? And the number mm. one thing he said was, I would advise you to start another company whose sole remit is to put your company out of business. Exactly, because yeah. the ideas that will come out of that the agility that will come out of that you remove all the red tape you remove you know the, the the inertia of the titanic and see what happens and that might be the company you end up going with but at the very least it will agitate you into movement exactly it's it's um you know uh, it's a sort of painful and scary exercise but it's the same circling back to the horror movie thing it's 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 creating the environment where you can kind of scare yourself out of your own complacency um, and, and create open up avenues for new thinking, new, um, you know, new revenue, entirely new markets. So the, the cross silos, the cross silos bit also, I have a, I have a friend who's obsessed. And when I say obsessed, I mean, has literally lost sleep over the fact, you know, why Sony didn't invent the iPod. He's just, he's just obsessed yeah. with why, why did Sony not invent the iPod? You know, they, they had the, they owned the music, you know, they owned the hardware, they owned the artists. They like, they literally owned every single bit that should have come together to, to create the iPod and they didn't. And yes. when, when he dug deeper, he found, he found an interview that the, that the CEO of Sony gave a very rare interview and he basically said, you know, we, we didn't invent the iPod, we should have done. 
And the only reason we didn't is because no one talks to each other in here anymore. We are so siloed within our business that this cross-functional innovation just does not happen. And that's why I thought that your idea of of actually appointing someone or appointing a budget to actually find the innovation across silos is huge in terms Mm -hmm. of of an executionable action. Exactly. So you've also said that story-doing companies consciously organize around a narrative that is then expressed through every action that they take from product design to customer service to marketing. So talk to me about story doing as expressed through product design, because I don't think that that's something that is done very much at the moment. And I think it presents a huge opportunity. Yeah, well, that that, um, you know, the way I think about it is story doing companies also behave in this odd way, which is that they put their quest right at the center of their business. And what I mean by that is, when you use the word story inside most companies today, and by most companies, I mean most storytelling companies, you, what, uh, what, what the, the immediate reaction is, oh, well, that's the domain of one department. They're called the marketing department, and they think about story, and nobody else in the company really thinks about story at all. In story-doing companies, the story is owned by uh, the entire leadership team up to and including the CEO, um, who often, you know, in the best companies will think of themselves as, you know, the CEO, but also essentially the chief story officer. And because the, the, the narrative, the quest is is owned by the whole leadership team, the expectation is that it will be expressed throughout the business, um, including, you know, the way the products are designed. And if the product is, is a, a, a physical product, you know, that can be the manifestation of the, of the, you know, the shape of the, of the product. But, but I think more importantly in the, you know, in the, the, the way that the product works and the effect that the product has on the world, it can include, uh, services as well. Uh, and it can even include the business model. Um, you know, there are now lots of one for one companies, but Tom's shoes and Warby Parker are examples of story doing companies that, um, really embraced an entirely new business model that made their products much more transmissible. That was not a marketing um, department idea. That was a core of the business idea that actually resulted in uh, a very transmissible story uh, that that lit up the medium of people. And so uh, another way to think about this is stop thinking of story as this sort of fluffy icing on the cake idea and start thinking of it as the engine that is going to drive your entire business and 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 as a result, spend the commensurate amount of time with your leadership team defining and aligning on what your quest is as you would on defining and aligning on what the budget is for next year, right? They, they, companies tend to think of money and budgeting as a very serious exercise and story as a very trivial and kind of um, nice-to-have kind of exercise. Story-doing companies uh, – really over, you know, strongly emphasize the, the importance of having a cohesive story and really being aligned and then expressing it throughout the experience. 
this is just a random throwing question. It's it's not one that I had that I had put together beforehand. But as you're talking, you know, if there's a is there a product classification out there or an industry classification that you you know in your in your running moments when you when you've got the space you think if I could just get my hands on that, what I would do with that if I could just get my hands on it? Does that exist for you? And if so, what is it? Well, so I would say in our business, I spend more time working with companies that are storytellers who are really on the journey to becoming story doers. Um, I spend less time working with companies that already have embraced like fully from their birth, the idea uh, that we're really talking about, you know, that. By the way, I hasten to add story doing, not an idea. I coined the term, but it's not an idea I invented. These these businesses predate me by a considerable uh, length of time. And so they, you know, often we kid ourselves around here. They don't need us. They already know how to do this. But if I could wave a magic wand, I would love to have some companies that are already really good at story doing um, come and talk to us about ways in which we could, they could better do their story or more differently do their story or just new ideas to kind of freshen up their story. That would be, you know, a really, a really fun thing to do. Um, can you pick one yeah. just to put it an out there in the ether? Like an individual company? Yeah. Brand. I would say, yeah, like I, I would, I would really love to work with Patagonia. Um, I, I so respect what they stand for as a business. Um, I think the apparel, uh, category is just, it's, it's one of the most environmentally damaging categories in the world. There's more waste in that category than, than in many, uh, the process of creating textiles is incredibly damaging. The whole supply chain you know, is fraught with problems, both social and environmental. And Patagonia is really systematically trying to solve a lot of those problems. So I have a ton of respect uh, for them. So if if I had to pick one, if they were going to, if the phone rang tomorrow, I'd love for it to be Patagonia. But there are many, many others that it would be, you know, just a, a pleasure to work with. I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep going. We're coming towards coming towards the end of our chat, and there's a couple of core areas I still want to touch upon. Sure. One of the I think big danger points that we see that we're seeing in marketing and in branding and storytelling at the moment is just is taking what works in one medium and just applying it to another medium. You know, we, we mm. saw it with we saw it with YouTube. I was literally on YouTube just yesterday, and that skip button after five seconds where you can skip an ad. There was an ad that, you know, one company had obviously spent money getting out there. Literally, the introductory music to the ad hadn't even finished. So there was mm. nothing about the the product, the information, the brand, nothing. It was just the introductory music. So I think we're, you're learning that you can't take, you know, a story from one medium and just shove it into another medium. It doesn't work. No. So how do you see story doing playing out when it comes to emerging technology? Specifically, in my mind, I was thinking about virtual reality. Um, a lot mm. of the, the emerging, because we're, we're coming to this horizon point where how we tell our stories will be radically different. The immersion yeah. of that will be radically different. 
And that opens up again another opportunity for brands to step into that story doing landscape because if I'm in a virtual reality environment, I can mm. actually, you know, I can take part in a story way more than I've ever been able to before. Right. So how, do you have any examples in mind or any thoughts as to how story doing could play out in those realms? So that's a great question, and I'm not sure that I have the perfect answer. I'll tell you how I... I will take I, in, imperfect contributions every okay. day over perfection. I, I would... Um, here's how I think about things. Um, I tend not to focus on the medium. I tend to focus on value creation, right? So I think, and maybe this makes your point, like I don't think, the fear I have about VR and AR and emerging technologies like that is that companies will think, oh, here's another opportunity. This is an immersive experience. I can immerse people in my marketing. I can make immersive advertising. And I think that that is absolutely the wrong idea. I, I love the idea of immersive experiences. I guess the question I ask myself is, again, not to be pedantic, but what is your quest? What positive change are you trying to make in the world? And how can you use an immersive experience to recruit people to join you on your quest? to make that positive change happen in the world. That is both, um, you know, by, by pulling people, creating experiences that are so compelling that they're pulled into your quest, you're helping to make the world a better place if, if you've got a good quest. And that is, it, it functions it as marketing. In other words, it attracts people into your sphere as a business, but it is not advertising. It's not an outbound kind of buy our stuff message. It's more of a, hey, what could we do together to make the world better using using kind of emerging technology? And I and so I I would encourage companies to make that mental shift from outbound messaging to buy our stuff to co-creating value with their customers and their partners. And, and if emerging technology will help you do that better, and in many cases I believe it will, do that. I love that flip from, as you said, you know, shouting propaganda messages yeah. at people to actually recruiting them. Because if you just make that mental shift, the way that you would approach your messaging is so different. Exactly. One's inclusive. The other one is very you know, exclusive. We'll, we'll stand over here behind a brand and shout at you as opposed to recruiting you on a journey or, as you've said, on a quest. Yeah, and it's just so tired. to do. It's tired, it's old, and it's boring to do it that way. And people sense that. You know, the, the companies that are willing to let you in and encourage you to come in and play are just so much more interesting. So... I would usually, you know, I would usually finish, and we're, we're, we're coming to the end now, I would usually finish the podcast by asking, you know, what's the, what's the one thing in regards to what you're passionate about, what you're an expert in, to the messaging that you're putting out there, what's the one part of it that people should be obsessing about? You know, if I'm a CEO or I'm a founder or an entrepreneur or a solo entrepreneur, when I go into the office this morning or tomorrow morning, what, sh- what one question or what one focus should I obsess about? And you may have already answered that. It might be 
around what is your quest, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, I would say that's um, in the here and now, that is what I would obsess about. Do I first, do I have a quest? Is it a good quest? Is my leadership team clear on it? And are we actually making it real in our customer experience, right? That needs to be the obsession of any leader of any business today. I believe that in my bones. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a, also at a, flying at a different level, I think there's, a, I think, a, a big change going on in the world that if, if you know, I wanted to run a, a, you know, growing and successful enterprise that I would want to have a point of view on. So we live in this amazing uh, time. It is both perilous and exciting. And it's perilous and exciting because two forces that were previously in opposition to one another are moving into alignment today. The first force is capitalism itself. This idea, you know, espoused by Milton Friedman that um, uh, the purpose of a corporation is to create shareholder value and that no other consideration should matter. That is the sole purpose of a company. And the second force is this um, this countervening force is the force of creating socially and environmentally sustainable behaviors and a socially and environmentally sustainable future on planet Earth. And for years, those two forces have been in conflict one, with one another. And it's clear that those forces are now beginning to align. So we see evidence of this happening everywhere. The rise of you know, what I'll call purpose-led businesses. These are companies that are for-profit, that are setting out to create value for broader stakeholders, the communities that they do business in, and in the natural environment that supports all of us. Um, we see it in the growth of things like impact investing, um, enlightened investors who are looking for more of these purpose-led businesses to invest in. You know, the amounts of money invested in in impact funds doubled last year and they're on track to double again this year we see things like the un uh, defining a set of sustainable development uh, goals to help companies benchmark their progress um, and then there are two really you know strange but kind of watershed events first was larry fink the ceo of blackrock he publishes a yearly letter to ceos blackrock is the biggest private equity uh, fund in the world and in his shareholder his ceo letter last year he said blackrock will no longer invest in companies that cannot articulate their social or environmental purpose and then the second watershed event was the business roundtable which is a, a group of global ceos some of the largest of some of the largest companies in the world 160 members of the business roundtable published a letter stating that they no longer believe that the sole purpose of a company is to create shareholder value, that this is um, – and this is a really big deal. This is a sea change in capitalism that's taking place. Um, and there are a lot of other examples, but I want to get to the part of this that I think should matter to your audience. What this means is that all of us have to choose – are we going to resist this trend or are we going to support this change? And I'm biased, obviously, but I truly believe that as 
consumers, as employees, as leaders of thought in business, that we all have a responsibility to support this change and that we need to vote with our wallets, um, buying the products and services of companies that are authentically purpose-led, and we need to vote with our feet and quit working for companies that don't think that way. Um, and I just – I feel like – uh, this is a moment of choice for all of us on planet Earth, and, and it, it really matters what choice we make if we have any chance of creating a sustainable um, future. So that's something that I think about uh, every day at, at Co. and I'm constantly trying to find ways to put my shoulder to the wheel to make more of that positive change happen. I I would give you that that soapbox ten times over. Um, you. You know, two weeks ago, I was lucky enough to interview Catherine Brown, who is the we just released it. I think a week or so ago, she's the head of sustainable and impact investing at the World Economic Forum. Oh, and cool. she was saying exactly that that the only way we are going to solve some of the world's greatest challenges at the moment is through a, a shift in capitalism. Is, is through, you know, governments are not set up to be able to do it with the infrastructure and the resources and the thinking that they have. Only a shift in capitalism, a shift in the way that we think about investing, a shift in the way that we think about product design, including micro donations within product design. That is the only way that we're going to, that we're going to solve these issues in addition to, you know, the storytelling that corporations have available, have at their disposal to be able to be, the, the ability to be able to set up these quests, recruit people onto these quests, and then resource those quests. Yeah. So I couldn't agree with you more. And, I, and you know, there are companies like Tom's. There's one here in Australia called Who Gives a Crap? <laughs> and it's a toilet paper company. And, you know, very small story. I went, About 10 years ago, I went on a bike ride with my husband, and I just, you know, stepped back from a business that I had founded and – and he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to start a toilet paper company. And he just literally stopped his bike and looked at me and he's like, you're going to what? And I was like, I'm going to start a toilet paper company because it is a product that you need, that you need the same amount of every month. It fits perfectly into a membership model. Um, there are high margins on it and you can take a percentage of that profit and do some really great good in the world. And, you know, it's a, it's a balanced business model. There's not peaks and troughs. Yeah. And it's a set and forget. I was like, I think it's a, a brilliant business idea. So anyway, I went online and started researching this business idea and lo and behold, it already existed. It was a company there called who, who Gives a Crap. And I have every month, I think it's $11, comes off my credit card and toilet yeah. paper arrives on yeah. my doorstep and a portion of that goes to um, third world, to solving the issue of third world sanitation. And I think that those membership model micro donation ideas we're going to start seeing more and more and more from large-scale brands because it makes sense on so many levels from a, a margin perspective a, a, a balancing out the the peaks and troughs of business perspective and also from a reinventing capitalism perspective so you had your soapbox i followed it up with my own love it <laughs> you're I love your box too. Like that's fantastic. That's so right on. And, and, uh, I'm so glad to have, uh, discovered a fellow traveler. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for, for coming at it with me a second time. We've, we've pulled out so many stops to bring this interview to you. So I appreciate your patience and, and keeping with it while we, while we got it together. No worries. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.